Macy, what do you think of when I say San Francisco? It's a beautiful city, very progressive politics, uh, great shopping, and it's friendly to the uh, LGBTQ plus community. So we love that. Yeah, yeah. You know, I I think of uh, some of those same things, the, the Golden Gate Bridge, some great parks, great restaurants. But I remember San Francisco from when I was growing up in the 60s. Oh. Back then, it was the hippie capital of the world. I think of flower children and free love and free drugs. Uh, the University of California at Berkeley, which is right in that area, it was the uh, known for a lot of free speech and, uh, and demonstrations. But by the early 1970s, San Francisco like most of America, had changed. Institutions that people had trusted seemed to be falling apart. Watergate had destroyed faith in government. The Vietnam War was still dragging on, leading to more and more violent protests on college campuses around the country. Racial unrest seemed to grow more and more intense and violent. Uh, most major cities in the country had seen riots that uh, burned their inner cities. The energy crisis and inflation had sapped the nation's strength uh, and, and the economy. It seemed that the country was coming apart at the seams. In the early 1970s, there were over 1,000 bombings a year in the United States. People were blowing up uh, libraries and police stations. And in Northern California, that seemed to be the hotbed of all this unrest. The University of California at, at Berkeley was the center of much of radical thought during those years. The superintendent of schools in, in nearby Oakland, just across the bay, was assassinated. San Francisco, it was said, was on the verge of a nervous breakdown. And it was into this environment that one of the strangest tales in the history of American crime took place. So sit back with that most famous of San Francisco inventions. No, not the trolley car, not Riceroni. I'm talking about the martini. And consider the perplexing tale of Patty Hearst, the poor little rich girl turned revolutionary. Patricia Hearst, and by the way, she hates being called Patty, is the granddaughter of William Randolph Hearst. Perhaps the best way to describe him is as the Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos of the early 20th century. He owned a nationwide chain of newspapers, and an endorsement from him could make a president. Or a negative story in one of his papers could kill a career. The movie Citizen Kane was based on his life. He died shortly after Patricia was born in 1954, so she never knew him. But her father, Randolph Hearst, was the publisher of the San Francisco Examiner. They were a very prominent family in San Francisco society, and as you might expect, she grew up in the lap of luxury. Elite private schools, trips to Europe. 
Her life was the epitome of what today, I guess, we would call white privilege. By the time she was in her teens, the seeds of rebellion had already been sown. She attended a Catholic high school, and at one point when she was disciplined by a nun, she told the nun to go to hell. That was the end of her time at that school. She became infatuated with her math teacher at the next school she went to, another prep school in San Francisco. His name was Stephen Weed. They began to date, and he proposed to her, and after graduation, they moved in together. Her proper parents were not amused that a former high school teacher was now engaged to their daughter. Patricia enrolled in the University of California at Berkeley and quickly became exposed to liberal political thought. Again, her conservative parents were not amused. Not far away from her apartment was the headquarters of the Symbionese Liberation Army. Well, not a headquarters, really. It was just another apartment that housed at various times up to 10 or 12 people in some small rooms. And it wasn't really an army. It was a group of radical students, ex-convicts, and self-professed revolutionaries. They were led by a man named Donald DeFries. DeFries had escaped from Soldad Prison, where he had been serving five years for robbing a sex worker. While in prison, he became familiar with some radical groups, such as the Vincermos Organization and the Black Cultural Association. He announced that he was abandoning the slave name of Donald DeFries, and from then on would be known as General Field Marshal Sinkyu, taken from the name of the slave leader of the slave rebellion on the slave ship Amistad in the early 19th century. After his escape, he was on the run. He finally ended up in San Francisco and met some of the other people who would become the other founders of the Symbionese Liberation Army, or the SLA. On November 6, 1973, two members of the SLA shot Oakland school superintendent Marcus Foster. He was the first black school superintendent in Oakland history, and they assassinated him with hollow-point cyanide-tipped bullets. They accused him of being a fascist for proposing to introduce identification cards into the Oakland School District, though by the time they had shot him, he had already withdrawn that request. For their next action, they planned a kidnapping. They thought this would force the authorities to release the two members who had been arrested for Foster's murder. They realized that an heiress named Patricia Hurst, the heiress of the Hearst Publishing Fortune, lived in an apartment building not far from them. On February 4, 1974, they broke into her apartment, beat up Stephen Weed, and dragged her out the door and put her in a car. Patricia's mother was later to say that she regretted that Patricia wasn't dating a real man. A real man, she said would have never let them take her daughter. After the authorities refused to release the prisoners, they made another demand. They told the Hearst family to provide a free food distribution program to poor people in San Francisco. 
At one point, they said they needed $4 million. At another point, they said they needed $400 million. Randolph Hearst said he didn't have that kind of money, but did go to a bank and get a personal line of credit and borrowed $2 million and began the food distribution program. It was a disaster. People mobbed the trucks as they went into neighborhoods. And finally, the workers on the trucks were speeding down the street, throwing turkeys out the back. It caused riots all over San Francisco. Patricia Hearst, by that time, had uh, begun making taped messages to her family and to authorities. And after this, she sent a tape recording asking why her family couldn't get the effing S together. What actually happened to Patricia Hearst during her captivity remains one of the great mysteries of this case. She claimed that she was held in a locked closet for days and that she was repeatedly raped by two male members of the group. She said she was forced to read their literature aloud and to parrot back their beliefs. She was also given other books by radical authors to read. She said that after being held for about a week, they gave her the choice of being released or of joining the SLA. She said that she was afraid if she didn't join them, they would kill her. So by the 13th day of her captivity, she had decided to join them. She began making tape recordings of the demands and also expressing their ideology. She became increasingly more vocal, calling her family and her fiancé vile names. And finally, she denounced her former life, her fiancé and her parents, and even her name. She was no longer Patricia Hurst. She was now Tanya, after Che Guevara's associate, Tanya the Gorilla. On April 15, 1974, about six weeks after the kidnapping, SLA members burst into the Hiberia Bank in San Francisco. Patricia was among them, holding a rifle and screaming, I'm Tanya, up, up, up against the wall, mother. Well, you get the idea. The following month, Bill and Emily Harris robbed Mel's sporting goods store in Inglewood, California. The manager chased Harris out the door and restrained him. Patricia was waiting outside in the car and began firing an automatic weapon above their heads, allowing Harris to escape. The police eventually tracked some of the SLA members to a house, and after a shootout, the house caught on fire. Six members were killed, including Donald DeFreeze and Willie Wolfe. The remaining members regrouped, and Patricia stayed with them. She helped make bombs and, in fact, even was involved in planting some bombs that were intended to kill police officers but didn't detonate. She was also involved in at least two other bank robberies. In one of them, a 42-year-old woman and mother of two was making a deposit when she was shot by Emily Harris, who claimed that the gun went off by mistake. Patricia was driving the getaway car. On September 18th, Hearst was arrested in a San Francisco apartment. When she was booked into jail, she listed her occupation as Urban Gorilla. Her attorney relayed the following message. Tell everybody that I'm smiling, that I feel free and strong, 
and I send my greetings and love to all the sisters and brothers out there. Her first attorney, Terrence Hallinan, told her not to talk to anyone, especially psychiatrists. He was planning a defense of involuntary intoxication, saying that the SLA had injected her with drugs, which affected her judgment and recollection. Neither she nor her family was happy with Hallinan, and F. Lee Bailey, one of the nation's premier defense attorneys, was brought on board. He asserted a defense of coercion or duress that affected her intent. The problem was that this defense was not recognized in law. Her trial for bank robbery began on January 15, 1976. The judge allowed testimony from prosecution witnesses and psychiatrists, but not from the defense psychiatrists. Several times throughout the trial, the judge was seen slumped down in his chair with his eyes closed. He was resting his eyes, he said. She was convicted of bank robbery and sentenced to 35 years in prison. At her sentencing hearing, there was a new judge. Judge Oliver, the sleeping judge, had since died, and the new judge reduced her sentence to seven years. On February 1, 1979, President Carter commuted her sentence to the 22 months she had already served. She was released from prison. Two months later, she married Bernard Shaw, a police officer who'd been on her security detail when she was temporarily released from bail a year earlier. They had two children. Mr. Shaw died in 2013. On January 20, 2001, on his final day in office, President Clinton granted her a full and free pardon. People still debate whether Patricia Hearst was a confused, brainwashed kidnapping victim or was she a rebel with a cause? A member of America's first generation of domestic terrorists. Thank you, Dad. As we know from last week, I didn't know anything about this story until I researched it. And we'll talk about what, what side I'm on a little later. I have a feeling you and I are on the same side here, but... I believe we probably are, yes. <laughs> I'm guessing a lot of listeners are as well, so. But first, we have our Trends of the Crime section, and this is the part of our show where I talk about uh, fashion that is in vogue at the time of the crime or fashion that has to do with the crime in some way. So with Patricia Hurst, who, was an heir- who is an heiress, I thought, well, I have to talk about other famous heiresses in fashion. And I thought of two off the top of my head. So we're going to talk about them a little bit. I know I've mentioned her before. It's because I love her. We have Paris Hilton, of course. Uh, She's one of the biggest style icons of my lifetime. And, you know, her style can be questionable at times, Mm -hmm. but she's fabulous. So why apologize, you know? And my understanding is she's also done a, a little bit of cinema work. She has, but dad, yes. she's more than that. I see. Now. I see. Okay. <laughs> I see. You must be talking about her new YouTube documentary. Uh, actually, I was talking, <laughs> I was talking about a, uh, just, just kind of a little homemade video that, oh, that found right. its way, uh, onto well, the internet a few years ago. They but, all have that. It's all right. It happens. Now it's just social media. So it's even worse now. Okay. <laughs> uh, Paris 
made like juicy couture tracksuits a thing. And this is actually very interesting because she is what put juicy couture on the map. And this was before social media. So she would just wear them out and the paparazzi would take photos of her. And she just looked amazing. So she is what made that brand take off just by wearing it. So she really was, you know, as we'll get to in a minute, probably not like the first influencer if you talk about just having people want to do what you do. But she was one of the first before, you know, shortly before social media took off. So she was the first who was closest to today's social media influencers. Uh, She also wore low-rise jeans. She had that platinum blonde hair and barely their eyebrows, which if those low-rise jeans and barely their eyebrows come back, I don't think I can do it. But, you know, I said the same thing about Crocs and here we are. I have Crocs. Yeah. I'm trying to, I'm trying to envision you with uh, no eyebrows, no eyebrows. You could use, you could use my little beard trimmer when we get done today and, and cut them off and let's just see what it looks like. No. Or I could cover them with makeup if I really want to see, but I don't. Okay. That's not my look. Well, I'm just, I would, I would be glad to to do that for you. Thank you you for the offer. You're welcome. I'll let you know if I change my mind. Now, doesn't uh, Paris Hilton have a brother who's also big into social media now, or is that one of the other ones? Are you thinking of Perez Hilton? Yes. That is not her brother. It's not. He is a troll. Oh. Who, in the early aughts, would just make fun of celebrities. And he's actually, was actually like a really bad person. Okay. He was just on the Britney Murphy documentary. Yeah. Because he predicted that she would be the celebrity to die in 2009. And he was right. And it was just like, Hmm. awkward. Because, you know, she was really thin and... But he didn't take into account the fact that she was being controlled and abused by her husband. But anyway, he has stepped away from being Perez because he realizes that he was really crappy. So so that's not even his real name. No, no, no. Oh, okay. I, well, I, I always thought it was her brother because I kept hearing about Perez Hilton. No. Uh, okay. What's his real name? Let's well, see. thanks for clearing that up. Yes. Uh, Mario Armando Lavandeira Jr., He should have stayed with Perez. Right. (laughs) Uh, Her, I I believe Nikki is her only sibling. Let me see. Yeah, just Nikki. Oh, wait. Nope. She has more. She has two brothers. Baron Hilton II and Conrad Hughes Hilton. Mm. Baron. What a name. That's not a name. That's a title. I know. Well, you know, that's a rich family, too. True. Yep. The, the Hilton Hotels. and mm-hmm. Yeah. We also have Gloria Vanderbilt. You've heard of her? No? Oh, yes. Well, yes, of, course of course I've heard of Gloria Vanderbilt. She was the heiress of the Vanderbilt Fortune, shipping and railroad. She was a model turned designer who established her own $100 million fashion empire outside of her, uh, of what's it called? Inheritance. Mm-hmm. She popularized jeans for women in a time when they were only acceptable for men. Uh, The marketing for her jeans was revolutionary. She put her signature on the back pocket, which included her famous last name. So no one had really uh, done that yet. Back pocket branding. So she was the first. And by back pocket branding, I'm talking like how Hollister has their little design on the back, American Eagle. Hmm. Gloria Vanderbilt was the first. 
New York Times said in 1979, the marketing of Gloria Vanderbilt jeans is one of the most dramatic American business success stories of the decade. She has been described as the original influencer because she often promoted her products in person at various events. Mm. Guess the only thing I think of when I hear Vanderbilt. Anderson Cooper? No, because I didn't know that till yesterday. (laughs) I think of Legally Blonde when he says, when Warner breaks up with Elle, and because my brother's marrying a Vanderbilt, for Christ's sake. Oh. And because he needs to marry a Jackie, not a Marilyn. I see. So she gets dumped. Then what? My boobs are too big? (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. One of the best movies of my mm-hmm. of my life. You know, she uh, she wrote a, a biography or an autobiography later in life called "Poor Little Rich Girl." Gloria mm. Vanderbilt did so. She evidently did not have a happy childhood, even though there was a lot of money involved. She was ignored by her family and um, but made it on her own. Well, if you can call being heiress to a hundred million dollar fortune making it on your own. I think uh, she had some uh, privileges that us normal people do not have. Well, Paris Hilton also had a horrible childhood and she was sent off to one of those um, camps, behavioral, Mm -hmm. uh, where you make your child better, but really the children were just abused. So I think that's a pretty common theme. It's like, we have money, so just send off the children, but then they go off and get abused. So very sad. Thanks for not being rich, Dad. I was just going to say, <laughs> if if we had been, if we had been, uh, you know, less less perfect parents, you know, maybe you would have been miserable, and now you'd be successful. True. So thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> You're welcome that I ruined your life by being a good father. Yeah. How rude. Well, tell me about the uh, martini. I know it's your fave. Well. Um, the martini, and I, we may, I think we may have made a martini in season one or two, but um, you know, it's like any cocktail. No one really knows where it originated, but uh, most people would say that it is a direct descendant of a cocktail called the Martinez. And the Martinez did did originate in, in San Francisco back around the time of the Civil War. It, uh, it was gin uh, and sweet vermouth. And uh, cherry liqueur. So it was a very sweet cocktail. And they called it the Martinez because people would stop by the bar and have one on their way home to a a little town called Martinez, California. By the 1880s, people were getting tired of of such sweet cocktails. And so they took the basic uh, Martinez recipe, which was, uh, as I said, gin, sweet vermouth, and cherry liqueur, and they eliminated the liqueur, and then it was just gin and sweet vermouth. During Prohibition, people uh, wanted something even less sweet, and so the sweet vermouth was changed to dry vermouth. So that is uh, that's the origin, as best we know it, of the of the martini, and it is really the quintessential San Francisco and American cocktail. So, uh, and it's my fave, as you said. So we'll I be, think we'll be making one. I think I might like the Martinez better than I like the Martini. I think you would. I, I can't. No one asked me my opinion when I they changed it. I can't. I can't wait to make it and watch your face when you take a sip of it. That's yeah, it's be really fun. fun. Yeah. <laughs> Same face I make anytime I take a shot. Ugh. I thought we could talk about 
what all Hearst Communications has, I guess. Like, I didn't realize they had all these magazines that I read and Mm -hmm. all these channels I watch. So some of the magazines that I didn't know were part of Hearst Communications, Cosmo, Country Living. I don't read that. Shocking, Mm -hmm. I know. Elle, Delish, Esquire, which you have a subscription to. I do. I saw Mm -hmm. Idris Elba on the kitchen table. Mm-hmm. Um, good housekeeping, Harper's Bazaar, and more. And then I put in parentheses basically everything. It I don't is, think they have Vogue though. It is still a it's still a worldwide brand, mm-hmm. and uh, a lot of newspapers and and TV stations, in fact, are still owned by Hearst. Well, you have in your notes ESPN, A uh, and E, Lifetime. They're all mm-hmm. subsidiaries of the Hearst Corporation. Yep. Um, I don't know if they're into social media. It wouldn't surprise me. Probably. But, uh, I didn't see anything, but I'm sure they are. So, Did you ever see the movie Citizen Kane? I did not see that, but I know I need to because it's a classic. It's, it's widely regarded as perhaps the best movie I of know. all time. And you, <laughs> yes, I would certainly recommend you see that because it is so, supposed to be based on, on the life of William Randolph Hearst. Mm, I didn't know that. Yes, yeah, so uh, watch it. And um, see if you can answer this question. What is the meaning of rosebud? Oh, yes. Uh, isn't it really good. long? What? The movie. Uh, I don't know. Probably a couple hours. It's not, it's not as long as Gone with the Wind. I oh, okay. Think, but I can handle that then. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I've heard of this rosebud thing. Mm-hmm. So I'll watch it. So you don't know what it is yet? I feel like I know an incorrect definition because they talk about it on The Office, but it's the wrong. He got it Mm -hmm. wrong. So I don't know. Well, here's here's another trivia question then for you. Mm -hmm. Um, Completely off topic, but it does have to do with Rosebud. On the Dick Van Dyke show, Richie, Dick Van Dyke's son, Mm -hmm. um, wonders why he doesn't have a nickname. And his parents are very reluctant to tell him, but they finally admit that he does have a nickname. And his nickname is, not nickname, I'm sorry, middle name. Why he doesn't have a middle name. And his middle name is Rosebud. Because of Citizen Kane? No. Oh. They couldn't decide who to name him after. And so they named him after a lot of his grandparents and uncles, Uncle Richard, Uncle Oscar, Samuel, Edward. Bill, Uther, and David, Rosebud. Oh. So now then then Richie ended up happy because he found out he actually had seven middle names and none of his friends had that many middle names. So sweet. Yes. Oh. Well, with that, <laughs> let's talk about the very joyous Symbionese Liberation Army. Ah, yes. It only lasted from 1973 to 1975. Left-wing radical students, like you said. It was considered a terrorist organization by the FBI and by local authorities as well. I'm not sure why. I mean, all they did was rob banks, kidnap people, and to make bombs. Why would why would But they, they had a message. A, so, I see. You know. <laughs> and what, well, pray tell. What was their message? Oh, I have that written down here. But it, it was... Uh, so... Th- they wanted all races, genders, and ages to fight together in a left-wing united front and to live together peacefully. So they wanted to fight 
but also live in peace? Yes. That doesn't make sense. Well, I think they thought if they could bring down the government and take over, then every everyone would be happy. We'd have world peace. Mm -hmm. Of course, it takes more than 12 people to bring down the United States government. Right. Of course. You know, if not for the fact that people died, I want to minimize that because people did die. People were um, shot. If you just looked at this uh, from the outside, it really does look like that old movie, The Game, that couldn't shoot straight. It just seemed Mm -hmm. like a collection of uh, losers who came together and wanted to do something but never really thought through. Uh, I know the leader uh, ended up running at least four or five people off because he threatened to kill them. Uh, (laughs) So it was not a... um, not a well-planned organization. Mm-hmm. And symbionese is not a word. No, it's not a word. <laughs> but I know where they got it. Where? They got it from symbiosis, which I remember learning about in high school science class. A body of dissimilar bodies and organisms living in deep and loving harmony and partnership in the best interest of all within the body. Mm-hmm. So they took that and made their own word. Good for them. Now tell us about their symbol, the the famous picture of of uh, Patricia Hearst standing in front of a flag with a seven headed cobra symbol. What's that all about? Yes, I I'm fully intended to look up the correct pronunciations, but I didn't. So and I don't want to offend. So I'm just going to read the English translations of these. I encourage you to look up mm-hmm. the. Uh, actual words and pronunciations. The cobra is the seven-headed SLA hydra-like cobra symbol was based on the seven principles of Kwanzaa. So the English translations of the principles are unity, self-determination, collective work and responsibility, cooperative economics, purpose, creativity, and faith. Mm-hmm. So that's what the symbol right. is. So it's the of. it's the seven principles of Kwanzaa then, which yes. is celebrated mm-hmm. today even. Yep. It is interesting that Donald DeVries was actually the only the only black man mm-hmm. in the Symbionese Liberation Army. Well, there were two and and one of them died, and DeVries was the only black man. Uh the rest of them were all middle to upper middle class white people. Which is interesting. Also yeah. makes me think that they just wanted to rebel. Yeah. And yeah. weren't brainwashed into this evil mm-hmm. thing. They were just like, screw you, mom and dad. I'm going to join the SLA. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Like, not very authentic, I guess, is what mm-hmm. I'm yeah. getting at. But yeah. Yesterday, you told me about some famous people who were at the bank robbery, uh, Patty Hearst's famous bank robbery. Yeah. Well, not, not just at the... Not just at the bank robbery, but just some connection that some famous people have with it. Mm-hmm. Do you remember Lance Ito? I do not. He was the O.J. Simpson judge. Oh. And uh, he was at a shooting range, and uh, he he was uh, startled as uh, there were some people there firing an, an illegal automatic weapon who turned out to be members of the SLA. And um, one of the other kidnappers uh, knew a fellow student in Indiana before she moved out to uh, to California, 
And uh, she came upon a woman who was being attacked by her date, and she intervened and saved her. And that woman was Jane Polly. And who is this? Jane Polly, who is the host of CBS Sunday Morning, famous journalist. Oh, yes. Uh-huh. I love her. Two of the uh, two of the members of the army who uh, were convicted in the sporting goods store robbery and later of uh, convicted of of killing a woman at the bank robbery, Bill and Emily Harris, uh, they were from Chicago. And before they moved out to uh, California, Bill Harris especially had a had a friendship with another young community activist in the Chicago area named Barack Obama. <gasps> My and boyfriend. So, and so uh, in, in, the, in the 2008 presidential campaign, uh, Senator McCain kept trying to tie Obama to that radical <laughs> domestic terrorist uh, that, he, that he knew briefly back in Chicago. And finally, there was a woman named Sarah Jane Moore in San Francisco, and uh, she worked on the uh, food drive that was demanded by the kidnappers. It didn't turn out too well. She never joined the SLA, but she became obsessed with with the SLA and became obsessed with with the Patricia Hearst story and um, was kind of a wannabe, but never joined them in the 19... I think it was 75, probably maybe 1976, President Ford was walking out of a hotel and she had a gun and fired a couple shots at him. <gasps> Missed him, but she actually, Sarah Jane Moore actually tried to assassinate President Ford. So, you know, did just, she get arrested? Oh, yeah. Yeah. She's, I, I, I don't, I think she finally got paroled, but, mm. uh, yeah. So, uh, you know, they crossed paths with some, with some interesting people. That reminds me of the one from the Manson family. Yep. Who who tried to assassinate someone? I can't remember. But who'd she try? Did she try to assassinate the president? Oh, Squeaky Frome. Yeah. Yeah, Lynette Squeaky. Yes, yeah, she too tried to kill President Ford. Oh, uh, it's both President Ford. Right. <laughs> and I can't remember which one of them actually fired shots that went over his head and missed him. The other one, uh, the gun misfired. Hmm. But yes, so yes, Squeaky Frome from the Manson family tried to kill President Ford, and then Sarah Jane Moore from the SLA story tried to kill him. So uh, poor Gerald, all yes. these women trying to kill him. Yes, he was. Uh, he was pretty lucky. Oh, yep. cup one other. Do you remember Jim Jones? Yep, the cult okay. leader. Yes, Jonestown. Um, he was also involved in the food distribution program. Of course, in San Francisco, that's where he was from. Uh-huh. And. Um, Bill Walton, famous basketball player, he he knew Bill Harris pretty well. So again, just more famous people that hmm. were involved on this, tangentially involved on this thing. Very interesting. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of famous people, I found some other famous heirs and heiresses. Oh, who else do that we have? I found interesting or were obvious? You know, I found five that I wanted to talk about. Okay, Anderson Cooper. Of course, Gloria Vanderbilt was his mother. Mm-hmm. Is his? I mean, she's dead, but whatever. I did not know that mm. until yesterday. I thought you knew that. Sure didn't, but uh, I do love him. So uh, he is the heir to two hundred million dollars. Mm. Son of Gloria Vanderbilt, he didn't expect to inherit his mother's fortune because she told him he was not going to get it. She wanted him to work hard. Uh, 
and he makes so he makes plenty of money on his own and he uh, was able to you know build his life like she said work hard mm-hmm. and but like we were saying it's not like he had to really start from the bottom <laughs> but he he gets the money though he gets yes, the he does. fortune yep uh but on his own he earns 12 million dollars a year and, and he, he gets the fortune and uh he just he just adopted a child didn't he I think so. Well, we'll I, a few years ago, I think yeah. we'll we'll have to see in in thirty or forty years. Well, you'll have to see. I won't know, but in thirty <laughs> or forty years, what happened to that child? Uh huh. I bet they... I bet it'll be the same thing. You're not going to get it, and then yeah. they get it. So right. But I think that's a good way to do that. Pretend like they're not going to. You know, mm-hmm. make them work hard. Uh, Julia Louise Dreyfus from Seinfeld. We have Elaine. I, I had no idea about this. I didn't either. I mean, I, I'd heard the name Dreyfus, but I had no idea she was involved with the with that famous French uh, shipping magnet. Yep, yep. So she also will inherit or did inherit $200 million from her great-great-grand—she oh, she is the great-great-granddaughter of Leopold Louise Dreyfus, uh, who founded the Louise Dreyfus Group in the 1800s, a French shipping conglomerate, like you just said. Her father was said to be worth $3.4 billion at the time of his death in 2016, and she inherited some of that. So that's where mm. she got the inheritance. Well, I bet Jerry's sorry that he didn't finally end up with you. I know, right? I would be. Hmm. We also have Surrey Cruz, of course, daughter mm-hmm. of Tom Cruise and Katie Holmes. She was their only daughter, so, or their only child. So she will get $300 million. Mm. And she's still a child, so I, there's no other information to share about her. The Bezos kids, there are four of them, Jeff, Jeff Bezos, of course. They mm. will split $131 billion, with a B, dollars mm. when Jeff and his wife die. Or ex-wife, sorry. Yes. So he's obviously the CEO of Amazon, and he was the wealthiest man in history for a point in 2018. My goodness. You know, he makes me mad, but <laughs> that's whole whole other story for another day. Lastly, but certainly not least, Blue Ivy Carter, the daughter of Beyonce and Jay-Z. She's the oldest, so she will inherit $333 million. She's only nine years old, but is already an award-winning songwriter when she co-wrote Beyonce's hit, Brown Skin Girl. Hmm. So she co-wrote her mother's song. Right. (laughs) And won an award. (laughs) We have to wonder a little bit about that one. Right. Yes. But anyway, her parents are musical geniuses, so I'm sure she will also be a musical genius, Mm -hmm. whether it happened at nine years old or if it will happen 10 years down the line. So, well, let's... Let's talk about what Patty's doing to I mean Patricia yes. is doing today. She may be listening to this yes. and I don't want to I didn't want don't want to get a text that we called her Patty. Right. Patricia. I apologize. Mm. Well, she got married like you said and has two children. She also became involved in a foundation helping children with AIDS and is active in other charities. Uh, she published the memoir, Every Secret Thing, co-written with Alvin Moscow in 1981. Who is that? Do you know? No. Me neither. Following the memoir, authorities considered bringing new charges against her because it sounded like she was in a consensual relationship with one of the members, 
but she denied this and said it was an insult to rape victims. Yes. She produced a special for the Travel Channel called Secrets of San Simeon with Patricia Hearst, in which she took viewers inside her grandfather's mansion, Hearst Castle, providing unprecedented access to the property. I'd like to watch that. She acted in films and TV shows in the 90s, and this was kind of fun about her dogs. Her Shih Tzu, Rocket, won the toy group at the Westminster Kennel Club Dog Show at Madison Square Garden on February 16th, 2015. At the 2017 show, her French bulldog, Tuggy, won Best of Breed and Ruby won Best of Opposite Sex. Hmm. So her dogs are famous, too. Yeah, I didn't uh, I didn't realize that she had done some acting, and I, I think I heard something about her, her dog show activities. But um, now, did you did you know that her daughter is uh, is now uh, a fairly famous uh, fashion model and lifestyle blogger? I did not. What's her name? Lydia Hurst Shaw. Hmm. She girl. was. Um, she looks a lot like her mother, but yeah, she's she's doing. Uh, she's building her own fashion empire. I don't know her. She's very pretty. Mm-hmm. She kind of looks like... Who do you think she looks like in this picture? Well, I don't know. Drew Barrymore. Oh, okay. I see it now. I see it now. <laughs> but she's younger than Drew, but she does yeah. look a lot like her. This story has also been in the media because it was pretty crazy and interesting. Patti Smith's reimagined 1974 cover of Jimi Hendrix's Hey Joe is a meditation. That's not the right word for that. Maybe it is. Is a meditation on Patti Hearst's involvement with the SLA. Mm -hmm. Stephen King states in his nonfiction book, Dane Macabre, Mm -hmm. that Patti Hearst's case was among the sources uh, for inspiration for his novel, The Stand, in 1978. Yeah, I, I read that a long time ago, and I, I can't even remember what it's about now. I was mm-hmm. trying to think what, what it was about. I don't know. Hold on. Probably somebody who got kidnapped. Oh, probably. <laughs> no. And lastly, we'll come back to number two. In Marvel's Jessica Jones TV series, a reference to Patricia's conviction is made in reference to another character committing crimes while abducted. So The Stand is a post-apocalyptic dark fantasy novel. The plot centers on a deadly pandemic. (gasps) We're in a deadly pandemic. Mm. Of weaponized influenza and its aftermath in which the few surviving humans gather into factions that are each led by a personification of either good or evil and seem fated to clash with each other. What? How on earth? Maybe maybe it's the SLA that influenced oh. him, not, not her not so her. much. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, because I, I kind of remembered the stand, and I was, I was racking my brain trying to figure out how she played <laughs> into it. She didn't really, it sounds like. <laughs> yeah. Well, why don't we talk about what we think about mm-hmm. uh, Patricia Hurst and and this, uh, oh, really only about a year and a half, two-year period in her life. Who was she? Was she a brainwashed victim or was she a rich girl out on a fling? That's what I think. I think she thought she had a boring life. 
And I don't know. I'm not saying that she wasn't... um, I don't want to say she wasn't a victim in anything. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't like to uh, discount survivors and their stories. uh, But I do believe that maybe at the beginning, she was rebelling a bit Uh and thought her life was boring. I mean, Uh she was, wasn't she engaged, correct? Yes, to to her former teacher. Right. So maybe she felt kind of trapped in this boring life. Uh And um, that's what I think. Yeah. You know, I I think that too. Um, Do you remember Jeffrey Tubin? Okay. He's the CNN legal affairs correspondent. Maybe if I saw him, I he uh, well, you may remember this earlier in the, in the pandemic, he was on a, a Zoom call with some of his uh, with some of his uh, colleagues at at CNN. While he was on the Zoom call with them, he was on another call mm-hmm. with someone else, and he had not uh, darkened that screen, uh-huh. and uh, he was doing something. Uh huh. Yes. The camera pointed where it shouldn't have been yes. pointed. Yeah, yes. yeah. Now I got it. So anyway, that that's Jeffrey Tubman. I bring that up because he wrote a book called American Heiress, mm-hmm. which is about the Patty Hearst case. Here's what Tubman said about the famous photograph of her standing in front of the seven-headed hydra. You look at this photograph and you have to wonder, whose side is she on? The mystery of that photograph is really what the mystery of this book is about. He said in his book, if you look at her actions over the following year, you see the actions of a revolutionary, not a victim. There was some glamour to what she was doing, the swagger of wearing berets, of carrying machine guns. The romance of revolution was an undeniable part of the appeal of the SLA. He called her and and her pardons an example of wealth and privilege in action. You know, he brings up some interesting points. I mean, she was left alone quite a bit. I mean, why not just walk up to someone and say, I'm Patty Hearst. I've been kidnapped. Uh, she's waiting in the car, driving getaway cars. Why not just drive off? Well, and was, someone uh, recognized her when she yeah. was just out running errands, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, mm-hmm. I, I, I tend to uh, agree with the. I tend to agree with Tubman. I just, I, I don't understand. But then again, I've never been kidnapped either. Mm-hmm. So who who knows what happened? Um, but um, she had plenty of opportunities to walk away from the thing and, and never did. And in fact, ended up making bombs and, and firing weapons at people. Mm-hmm. Um, hmm. What do you think and I, why? I agree, but like I said, I... And like what you said, never been kidnapped. Um, don't want to minimize a survivor's account of what happened. Mm-hmm. I believe some of what she's saying is true. And I believe some of what yeah. Tubin is saying is true. Yeah. I mean, I think like everything else on in this world, it's gray. It's not yeah. black or white. Yeah, It's not she got kidnapped and was brainwashed. And it's not she knew everything about everything that was yeah. going on. So. Yeah. Tubin Tubin said uh, she didn't escape because she didn't want to escape. She was part of the group. Uh, when she after she was arrested in '75, she responded rationally. Then too, she said, "Yeah, I don't want to be a part of all this anymore." 
I recognize that my family loves me. I recognize that. And I want to go back to my former life. And um, so it's kind of like what I said. Like, yeah. She was bored. Yeah. Well, what do you think about the fact that that uh, she was pardoned by President Carter, commuted by President Carter and pardoned by President Clinton? And Reagan, Reagan had thought about uh, uh, commuting her sentence as well, but didn't. And Carter, Carter did shortly after he took office. So what do you think about that? Sounds like a lot of privilege to me because mm-hmm. there are a lot of people that that would not happen to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A lot of people it does not happen to. Yeah. With similar stories. Yeah. Well, I'm glad she turned her life around, at least, and um, seems to be making a contribution to society. But uh, But I would like to see her. I hope, I mean, I didn't see any more details of charities she's involved with, but I hope that she has used her platform to help other kidnapping victims or rape victims mm-hmm. because she says that that's what happened to her. So I hope that she has helped women who don't come from a family as privileged as hers. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Well, what's next? What's up next? Yes. Next week we have the Brinks bank heist. Oh, that's a good one. I don't know this one either. Well, so this will be fun. What country is this in? Bastin. Oh, so the U.S. Cool. Bastin, I believe. Yes. Have Take to it. have some coffee. Coffee with our recording. I can't do yeah, it. Yeah, you're sounding. You're sounding My more like. You're sounding Jersey. more like Wisconsin there than oh, you are. Right coffee. Now. Yeah, we got some. It's gonna be. <laughs> well, you know, it's gonna be wicked good. Wicked good. Wicked smart. Yeah, wicked good. Wicked smart. Wicked smart. All right. Well. I guess uh, we're about ready to go downstairs and and watch a football game. So should we say, go Chiefs! This has been Cocktails of Crime and Fashion. If you're enjoying our show, please leave us a five-star rating and review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to the show. Join our VIP Facebook group, Cocktails of Crime and Fashion VIP, to discuss cocktails, crime, and fashion, and to watch exclusive video content. Follow us on Instagram at Cocktails of Crime and Fashion. We also have merch. There's a link in the episode notes. Cocktails of Crime and Fashion was written and produced by Mike Norland and Macy Norland Burkett. Our editor is Don Bailey at pretendmachine.com. Thank you to Alex Joaquim for composing our theme music and to Kaylee Bitter for designing our cover art. <laughs>